You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. This episode is also brought to you by Rocket Money. Stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log, rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 474, The Thaw. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we face our fears by watching every episode of Star Trek and digging deeply to explore the morals, meanings, and messages and see if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, The Thaw, the one where the Voyager crew meets the Joker. I mean, the clown. They meet the clown in The Thaw. It's an easy mistake to make. Look, I'll be back with trivia in a moment as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. We'll have John's trivia in just a moment, but first a word from one of our sponsors this week, Star Trek Wines. You know, Norman, I, it shouldn't be a surprise to us at all, but it's still kind of fun to note that a lot of people have reached out to us to say, you know, I, I don't really drink wine, but I really want those bottles. Really, truly. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, like, is that cool to do? And yeah, it's absolutely cool to do. But let me tell you, either way, whether you want the bottles because you want them as part of your collection or you also want to try that wine, you're not going to go wrong either way. The wine is fantastic, and the bottles on your shelf, well, it is kind of the adult-oriented Star Trek prop that I've always wanted. I look at that 2221 vintage Picard that mm-hmm. they served up in Strange New World, that makes me very happy to have that. Or not to mention the silver label, the 25th century 2401 uh, Chateau Picard that we saw in season two of Picard. I also like that they go the extra step. Like a lot of these bottles come with uh, that special topper so you can reuse the bottle. Mm-hmm. They've really like looked at all the little details knowing that people like you and me and our listeners will want to hang on to these bottles for a long, long time. Well, I mean, the devil is in the darkest in the details, right, John? <laughs> oh, right? Ni- nicely done, Thank yeah. You. And, you know, that's yeah. one thing that I think that Star Trek wines in, in, their, in their vision to create these products – to create a product that uh, not only collectors will like, but also wine connoisseurs would really enjoy as well. And to build that wonderful prop library that's going to be iconic on their bars for years to come. So do yourself a favor and visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. And now... Here's John thawing out this week's trivia. 
All right. Trivia for this week's show. We have a story by Richard Gaddis, and this one is kind of a mystery. Uh, He has just one professional writing credit, and this is it. He also has three professional acting credits, the first and the second of which are separated by about 20 years. So if anybody can shed any light on that, you let us know. But that brings us to the teleplay, because as we know, a lot of those pitches are picked up, maybe even just based on a sentence or a paragraph pitch, and then a staff writer will take it and run with it. Well, Joe Minoski is the uh, person that we have to credit for today's show. And here's where you may just be connecting the dots based on the tone of the episode. Joe was always known for bringing weird elements to Star Trek. And at this time, he wasn't a regular member of the writing staff on Voyager, but he was a known quantity back to those TNG days. He was living in Paris when he wrote this one, and shortly after the production invited him to join the staff permanently. It was directed by Marvin Rush. Now, it's just my fandom creeping in here because I rarely pass by a chance to sing the praises of Marvin Rush, the superb director of photography, during most of this period on Star Trek. He only directed five total episodes, though, this being the second one after his debut effort on TNG with The Host. He'll be back for one more on Voyager and two on Enterprise. And I'll say it again, go watch Hell on Wheels, another great show on which he was the DP. He did an excellent job there as well. Oh, and here's kind of a fun trivia note. Marvin Rush, of course, he was director of photography for so much of Star Trek. And when he took on his directorial job here... He knew that this episode was going to be a big task with a lot of visuals, so he assembled his team and actually took his camera operator that he normally worked with and moved him up to director of photography. So here, keeping that team back together, keeping that core together to get the shots that he wanted, and he spent about double the normal pre-production time on an episode just so he could get all those visual elements together before shooting this one. Now, let's meet our guest stars. There are three members of the ill-fated coal colony who we meet. Viorsa is played by Thomas Copacci, and you may remember his name because he is a longtime Star Trek guest star. We first met him in the TNG episode The Next Phase, where he played the Romulan Miroc. We saw him looking a little less alien when he was the train conductor in Emergence in TNG's final season. And he made two appearances on DS9. We'll catch him again twice more in Enterprise. Shannon O'Hurley plays the programmer, and this episode of Voyager was her first TV guest star role. Prior to this and throughout, well, a lot of her career, Shannon has been in feature and TV movies, everything from Legally Blonde to Minority Report, Of course, there are plenty of guest roles in her resume since then. Boston Legal, Party of Five, The X-Files, to name a few. But prior to going in front of the camera, Shannon's training and early career was on the stage, studying at places like the American Conservatory Theater and the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Tony Carlin plays the physician, and Tony got his start on TV in the mid-'80s with a short run on the daytime soap Search for Tomorrow, He does have some feature credits, like the Eddie Murphy version of The Nutty Professor and The Bourne Legacy. A couple of notable TV guest appearances, though. Wings, 
That one's for you, Norman. One of my favorites. Yep. <laughs> and and beyond belief, fact or fiction, Alan, that one was for you. <laughs> now, in our nightmarish virtual space, we meet a few oddball characters. Welcome back to well-known Trek guest star Carol Stroyken as the Spectre. That's the tall guy behind the mask with the giant teeth. Patty Maloney plays the little woman, and she has quite the sci-fi legacy as well. She was inside the Tweaky costume for a few episodes of Buck Rogers, and she was in a number of Sid and Marty Croft shows, notably as Honk in the Far Out Space Nuts. But most importantly, she was Chewbacca's son Lumpy in the Star Wars Holiday Special. Finally, it's time to send in the clown, played by David St. Hubbins, I, I, I mean, uh, Jerry Palter. Oh, no, wait. Or uh, Lenny Kosnowski. Look, it's hard to overlook any of the fantastic, iconic characters brought to life by Michael McKean. He's an actor, comedian, musician, and you've probably seen him in Spinal Tap or A Mighty Wind or Laverne and Shirley. He had a short run on Saturday Night Live, and those are all just the tip of the iceberg that is his career. Like a lot of comic actors, Michael got his start in a comedy troupe. He was part of the credibility gap in the late 60s where he worked alongside future collaborators like David Lander and Harry Shearer. It's worth noting that Michael is a Star Trek fan, as he is a fan of science fiction literature, and was excited to work on the episode. He wasn't the only one excited. He didn't even have to read for the part. His name was on a very short list, and Marvin Rush knew that he wanted him. While this is his only Trek appearance, Michael has a number of appearances in other genre titles like Daryl, The X-Files, Earth Girls Are Easy, and as a voice in multiple Batman animated projects. Most recently, you can see him in Weird, the Al Yankovic story. The thought implies Harry was meant to be refrigerated this whole time. Maybe that's why his rank is frozen. Prologue. In the privacy of his own quarters, the ever-disciplined Harry Kim is dutifully practicing his clarinet, to the delight of Tom Paris and the chagrin of Ensign Baytart. But most importantly, for the approval of his mother, who still holds sway over her son's extracurricular obligations, even some 70,000 light years away. Harry admits that he's working on a duet with Susan Nicoletti, yes, the same cold-hearted lieutenant that Tom Paris has been chasing these past six months. And, as Chakotay orders all senior officers to the bridge, Tom tells Harry he's always wanted to play the drums. Voyager approaches a deserted planet where, according to Neelix, once existed a trading colony on its surface. According to their censors, both Harry and Chakotay informed Janeway that a solar flare 19 years ago caused a glacial freeze that created extreme weather patterns resulting in magnetic storms and high levels of radiation. Additional sensor readings suggest that the technology on the planet once belonged to a warp-capable species of approximately 400,000 people who were likely unable to escape due to the extreme atmospheric disturbances. However, if all of those people perished, then whose hail is Harry receiving from the planet's surface? Act 1. Harry believes that the hail is an automated signal, and when piped through the viewscreen, a man appears and introduces himself as Viorsa 
planner of the coal settlement below, and one of a select few of his species who have placed themselves in artificial hibernation for 15 years in order to survive the ecological disaster on their world. Chakotay mentions that Viorza's timetable ended four years ago, prompting Harry to do a deeper surface scan. To his astonishment, he discovers three extremely faint biosignatures out of five total humanoids. Once Tuvok approves them safely for transport, Janeway orders the hibernation pods to be beamed directly to Cargo Bay 1 and orders both Harry and Kess to meet her there. When Kess arrives, she scans the stasis units consisting of five long chambers in a circular formation and connected to a central node. Janeway wipes the dust from one and finds Viorsa, alive and unconscious, while another exposes a decomposing corpse. Harry's scans indicate all the technology is working, especially what appears to be an interactive data stream, similar to technology that Janeway remembers Starfleet using to keep minds active and alert during long deep space travel. So she asks, what went wrong? In the conference room, the facts before the command staff are thus. Even though they were able to leave the stasis pods as planned, the doctor confirms that two of the five scientists died from heart attacks as a result from extreme mental stress and fear. Harry admits that he doesn't understand the system well enough to revive the remaining scientists to avoid possible brain damage. Tuvok suggests asking the survivors themselves by linking into the hibernation system through a specialized comlink and modified stasis tube. So it's back to the cargo bay where Balana and Harry link themselves to Kess's monitoring system and then activate the stasis pods, which causes them to lose consciousness and enter the system, which Harry and Balana experience as an extreme abstraction of an almost circus-like atmosphere, complete with garish color palettes and throngs of oddities. As they try to blend in, they also confess to several of the denizens that they are looking for friends. This draws the attention of a gray and white-faced clown who entangles them in a massive conga line. And in trying to escape, Balana is neutralized by several masked oddities while Harry is bound and his head is placed in the cradle of a giant pink guillotine. Act 2. Before the executioner can engage the guillotine, Viorsa appears with the other two surviving scientists and tells the clown that if he kills Harry, then the entire program will be shut down in response. This gives the clown pause enough to set Harry free and for he and his minions' aggression to subside, for now. Balana demands to know who and what this clown is, to which he aggressively responds as one who is in charge and one who speaks for all. He adds that he's also not the kind of virus Harry believes him to be, nor some technological problem to solve. What the clown does confess is that no one can leave the system, or he and his minions will cease to be. Shortly after, a panel materializes on a nearby wall. It's Kess's wake-up call, to which the clown responds with an ultimatum. If Harry and Balana leave, then Viorce's male colleague will die in the same way the other scientists did, in the manner that Harry finally deduces from all that he's seen and experienced so far in this dream state. The clown literally scared them to death. This forces Harry and Balana to terminate the recall command, which in the real world causes grave concern for Janeway and Kess, as Tuvok confirms that the recall command was terminated by somebody inside the system. Harry tries to negotiate with a clown who only senses deception. His remarks about Libby and a few other personal details prove that Harry and Bolana's thoughts are indeed known to the clown. Harry leans into this advantage, convincing that Janeway's conviction to terminate the program would be swift, which forces the clown once again to pause and consider the consequences. During that time, Viorsa informs Harry and Balana that the clown was an unintended side effect of the system, manifested by the program while it monitored their deepest fears, allowing it to read their minds and prey upon those fears. 
Suddenly, the clown interrupts their conversation with his demands. He will let Balana go as a peace offering to Janeway, but only to tell her that the rest of the hostages must remain. And as Balana begins to recover from stasis, Janeway believes she will finally get some answers. Act 3. In the briefing room and after receiving more information from Balana about the clown and his demands, it appears that the only way to save any of the hostages is to sacrifice one of them to the system in order to maintain the clown's existence. Janeway's primary concern is reducing the amount of hostages while finding a way to negotiate with the clown, but without sending in another hostage. And perhaps the biggest question left hanging in the room, how do you negotiate with an emotion? Back in the system, Viorsa laments what has happened to Harry while all of them continue plotting their escape. And when their thoughts are finally synced in time to the clown's artificial intelligence, he becomes enraged and lashes out at Harry, probing his deepest fears and manifesting them by turning Harry into what he fears most, helplessness, whether as a fettered old man or a crying infant. But Harry remains steadfast until the clown discovers the one event that has terrorized Harry his entire life. And just as Harry is restrained onto a hospital gurney, the clown brandishes a scalpel and is ready to cut as the doctor arrives and chastises the clown for his lack of surgical proficiency. The clown is perplexed as to the how and why he cannot read the doctor's mind, to which the doctor responds bluntly that he is present only through a miracle of technology and solely as the captain's representative, armed with a list of her ultimatums. She has also offered the clown the opportunity to exist in a simulated brain, which he flatly refuses, demanding wanting to only reside in real brains. The clown also wants to keep all of the hostages in case any of them get sick or die unexpectedly, which again would put his existence at risk. After refusing all of Janeway's demands, the clown taunts the doctor who returns to the real world and updates the captain on his assessment of the clown's resolve. Act 4. In sickbay, Janeway, Chakotay, Bellana, and the doctor reassess the situation upon the doctor's return from negotiating with the clown. What they know is twofold. One, any attempt to disconnect the hostages from the system would result in certain brain damage, and two, the clown would know if they tried to bait and switch him over into a simulated brain. Looking for more options, the doctor mentions that Viorsa recommended a recalibration of the optronic pathways, which doesn't make sense to Bellana from a technical standpoint, unless that was the point, and that Viorsa was speaking in code. The doctor did say that the clown was a bit distracted during their negotiations, and that is reason enough for Janeway to send him back into the system so that he can divert the clown's focus while Bellana disrupts the optronic pathways to disassemble the system's environment from the inside. Meanwhile, back in the system, much to the clown's chagrin, the doctor has returned to represent the captain's new ultimatums. The clown stops him short, demanding no simulated brains, only real brains. However, the doctor dangles a cloaking device in front of the clown, one that can shield him from being detected from other visitors in the future, and is the perfect distraction so that Balana, in the outside world, can work undetected, as she uncouples dozens of pathways, causing elements in the clown's environment to destabilize and disappear. However, when the clown realizes what is happening, he immediately locks Balana out of the system and declares a red alert to his throngs of minions who converge on Viorsa, restrain him, and shuffle his body atop the stage where the guillotine and the executioner await. And when the guillotine's massive blade drops, Viorsa's terror spikes, causing Kess in the real world to watch him die immediately from massive heart failure. A forlorn Janeway declares, We've lost as the clown revels in his victory, declaring to his minions that we've won! Celebration! Celebration! Act 5. In sickbay, Janeway is distracted, 
lost in thought and doubting herself and her actions that have led to Viorsa's death. The doctor tries to reassure her that his death wasn't her fault, but she believes that she underestimated the clown and what fear is capable of when its demands are not met. She respects fear as an emotion and knows why thrill-seekers place their lives in danger because the rush that fear provides them. The question that now plagues Janeway, what does fear actually want from all this when the thrill is over and the ride has ended? Back in fear's domain, the clown is celebrating what he believes is his final victory over Janeway. And once again, the doctor arrives as the proverbial wet blanket, tossed on the clown who is proverbially basking in the sun. He has returned with yet another ultimatum from Captain Janeway, which intrigues the clown to no end, comparing her to other great leaders in history who tried to negotiate terms after crushing military defeats, like Napoleon after his catastrophic defeat at Waterloo, or Chulak of Romulus after his defeat at Galorndin Corps. But this time... The clown has one minute to agree to Janeway's terms, or she will terminate the program, regardless of the risk of brain damage to Harry and the remaining scientists. Or he can let them all go in exchange for Janeway herself as the sole neural link to keep his program alive. Flattered and somewhat surprised by her conditions, the clown accepts. The doctor relays his success to Janeway via the emergency holographic channel, and Janeway prepares herself for neural transfer in the remaining empty stasis unit. As the clown has his minions spitshine his domain, preparing for Janeway's arrival, he keeps Harry and the scientists as long as possible, just so they don't escape before he can claim his prize. But when she arrives, she meets the clown head-on, remarking how she respects the aspect of fear and how it has influenced her career, to which the clown revels in her appreciation. And with their exchange made... Both she and the clown watch as Harry and the scientists leave the program, confirmed by Bellana's sensors monitoring their body temperatures. With the hostages safely out of the system, Janeway reveals to the clown that he has been tricked, using the delay in his program which allows him to read his victims' minds. Janeway admits that she is a hologram, and counted on the clown's neural uplink delay to not sense her treachery before she could get the hostages to safety. As darkness begins to swallow the clown, Janeway tells him that Starfleet captains don't easily succumb to fear, and that, like all fear, will eventually vanish, as the clown does, ironically fearing the end of his own existence. The end. Norman, nice job on a dense recap, and I'm, I'm glad that you used the right phrase, because it's not just enough to have minions alone. One must have throngs well, of You've got to have throngs of minions, yeah. You do. Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah, what kind of bad guy are you if you don't have throngs of minions? <laughs> I got to say, right back from the, the top of the show, from the uh, teaser, I really want to meet Baytart someday. Like, I'm tired of the tease here. It's kind of like Bode on DS9. All right. <laughs> I know we'll never meet him, but <laughs> I, I feel like I need to. <laughs> you know, it's a funny opening, and it's funnier to know that it was clipped and, like, reused again from a previous yeah. episode. Yeah, uh, Death Wish. Wish. Yeah. yeah, it was where they originally shot it for. Yep. So if the walls are so thin, and I know this is a PG show, and I'm going to keep it PG, <laughs> or family show, but if the walls are so thin between yes. quarters, as you can hear uh, Harry's clarinet being played, Janeway suggested in an earlier episode that someday if Voyager to survive their multi-generational trip home, you're going to have to start creating families. So is privacy an issue now since... Obviously, clarinet music can penetrate walls. Or it's you know what every single I think every single room what what you hear at night is like uh, computer play this music you know every <laughs> every cabin has got different music playing yeah um, 
And why can't Harry say practice in the holodeck in like a recreation in every possible way of one of the greatest acoustic achievements ever in the history of man, Carnegie Hall? He could do right? it. Yes, that would be awesome. But yeah. what I real I got a lot out of that opening scene. So the most oh, yeah, right, so the most important yeah. question we're all asking ourselves, or at least I think we're you and I, John, are asking ourselves. Exactly when mm-hmm. Tom was working double agent duty with Janeway, <laughs> when did he have time to chase <laughs> Lieutenant Nicoletti? I know. I know. Maybe that's why he was so bad at it. Oh, maybe. It was like the bad boy thing didn't play <laughs> for her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. It's too I'm bad. sorry. I know I that we weren't moved. supposed to bring that storyline up again. But I can't help oh, it. It yeah. just served it up. Yeah, deep, deep, deep apologies yeah. for our displeasure with the poor <laughs> handling of uh, the Tom Paris subplot. Let's move on, though. So very cool sci-fi trope uh, with the dying civilization putting themselves in stasis and then leaving that automated distress signal. I mean, that, that's kind of cool. But, but it's also the sci-fi trope that you have to have at least one person oh, yeah. dead in the hibernation pod see also uh space seed see also the first planet of the apes movie i mean anytime you have a hibernation pod somebody's turning up a oh, course. totally yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. i love uh Viorza introducing himself planner for the coal sediment i'm glad that the department store mm. chain made it into the mm. 24th century and especially out in the delta quadrant there's nothing like being able to branch out your stores and yeah. yeah, well, it's because they have such a robust rewards program. Yeah. I think that's... Gotta love yeah. those Kohl's dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, on a more technical and serious note, since yes. this is Marvin Rush's. Yes. So I timestamped this, and all of you you know, directors out there may want to take notice. Timestamp, 2 minutes 26 seconds to 2 minutes 31 seconds. There's a wonderful right-to-left camera pan where Tom, with Harry in the background, you know, mm-hmm. is in the scene, and then he slides over... And then you have Neelix and then Janeway walk into the foreground from that scene. It was just a wonderful way to move the camera from one side to the other side and show a majority of the crew in the process interact with him. Yeah. Yeah, that was really nice stuff. By the way, you know, we've pointed out before when you have scenes in Star Trek where there's somebody like in another room or they're in the corridor and then there's a conversation going on in the room that we're in with the camera, right? And they're having a conversation. Then the door opens, and the person who was in the corridor responds to that conversation, mm-hmm. like the inappropriately dramatic entrance. Okay. In this case, you have everybody in the conference room, and then the EMH just drops into the conversation <laughs> in the conference room at the right time with the right answer. And he's just on a calm. Right? Because he's still in sick bay and they're all sitting there in the conference room, but you hear the chime. It's not like he was on before. You don't see right. him in the monitor before. You hear the chime that he is actually connected to that meeting. That was a bit. Didn't much. he promise yeah. not to eavesdrop anymore? And he okay. lied. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I do love that uh, he he kind of pushes back to Chakotay and says, Surely, Commander, you're not suggesting we simply unplug them, Chakotay said. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Sorry, I had to do that. You know, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's there. It's necessary again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It mm-hmm. has to be. By the way, look, I, I sympathize with the people of the coal colony because if I were caught in a VR <laughs> rent fair with dancers and mimes for all eternity, I would wish for oh death. Uh, that 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 just makes sense to me. Yeah, but but look, if you do wish for death, I have to admit that pink guillotine makes it much more friendly and festive. Pink guillotine is a great so. name for a band, by the way. <gasps> oh my God, you world, you there have that. 
That is yours now. Yep. It's a VR written mm-hmm. fair. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, just uh, never, never. <laughs> I do like the uh, the contrivances. You, you mentioned this about you know uh, you know kind of the, these these movies that have these pods that are kind of like you know covered in dust mm-hmm. or debris, and then you wipe one off and oh someone's alive. You wipe the next one off and like oh yeah. someone's dead. Oh someone's dead. Um, the neural yeah. system, I guess, could best be described as Cirque du Soleil on acid and a budget. Right. Okay, wait, wait a minute. Yes. So Cirque du Soleil on acid, yes. On a budget, yes. Marvin Rush talked about how you know, it just had a limited space. They had to move around those set pieces and get really creative with the lighting to give it depth. Some of those extras are Cirque du Soleil it's, performers. It felt like that. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. who they Especially hired. The, that the is sphere they hired. juggler. That's a, you know, that is a very mm-hmm. like specific skill. It also had a very wonderful TOS kind of flavor to it, right? Oh, we're yep. going to come back to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. The Clown and the Fear of Clowns, it, it almost kind of like went over my head at first, but I'm like, of course. Like there's a majority of people out there that has this just, you know, this uh, almost kind of like primal fear of clowns. I, I keep trying to figure out where that started because at a certain point, clowns were just – yeah. Fun. I mean, Ronald McDonald wouldn't have been the choice for the mascot for McDonald's if most people feared clowns. But at a certain point, you know, obviously Bozo is a huge hit for decades on TV. Uh, but at a certain point, it changed. And now I hear more about fear of clowns than I do adoration and enjoyment. Pennywise? Maybe, but I feel like Pennywise is taking advantage of that fear that was yeah, already there. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a survey to see when people started, the majority started to fear clowns. You know, I, I really liked, speaking of the clowns, the clown, Michael McKinn as the clown. Mm-hmm. I loved mm-hmm. the, almost kind of like the uh, geometric styling of his tunic and his face makeup. I thought that was just a really yeah. interesting detail. I yeah. thought it, it kind of like reminded me of teeth, like the, like the steel teeth from Jaws in James Bond. Uh, I don't know if yeah, there's something there yeah, like yeah. he's like eating their energy in a way. Oh, I know I'm reaching nice, that's like that. Yeah. 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 But it looked cool. I, I do want to go back to Voyager for a second. There's a wonderful use of just dark and quiet in those shots in the conference room. We're about midway into the mm-hmm. show at this point. The mood is so somber and so contemplative. And, and again, it's just Marvin Rush using visual storytelling as it should be. Really great, great shots. And of course, that's where we get uh, Tuvok's line, fear is the most primitive and most primordial of emotions, but clearly expresses itself in all species. So maybe that's the thing that we'll come back to. But another well. timestamp for this episode, 22 minutes, 49 seconds. Okay, Janeway's stare after Neelix suggested to make a clown, like, laugh. That's Starfleet Ford. That's the yeah. dumbest thing I have ever heard. That, that stare could cut through steel. Oh, my God. It, it, it could. But, but here's the thing. Isn't Neelix he's not wrong? I'm not, I, yeah, I, no, he's not but wrong. It's just. Like, we can't just dismiss him right away like that. I don't, I don't know where Kate <laughs> came up with that, guy. but it's like that's the most intense stare I think I've ever seen. Neelix is struggling to get out that idea, but I don't think he's wrong entirely. Hey, I'm going to match your timestamp with another timestamp, 2340, the Hitchcock Zoom. Yes, Marvin Rush. All day long, bring that to me. Otherwise known as the Dolly Zoom, I love that's that the uh, the zoom in, but Dolly track reverse, right? Yeah, the Vertigo mm-hmm. Zoom. Yep. Yeah, yep, 
Yeah, you just totally change that depth of field in that shot. Oh, I so thought good. the old man hairy makeup was well done, but even better than that, mm-hmm. the infant hairy makeup was award winning. <laughs> just want to, you know. It's yeah. very, very convincing. Also, yeah. I know that, you know, Harry is kind of like the new O'Brien, you know, uh, Harry Kim must suffer. But there is an yeah. interesting thing where, you know, I mean, the bookends of what the clown did to him were either old man or infantilized, right? So that's the lump sum of kind of Harry's career. He just gets trapped in helplessness as a baby or helplessness as an old man, and he's an ensign in between. He's an ensign the it's whole time. Sad. Old man yeah. Harry. <laughs> All right. Um, Speaking of old man Harry, I love the clown taunting him. Try clicking your heels together three times. So funny that uh, the clown has picked up on a couple of references to the Wizard of Oz, Mm. as long as their brains have been attached to that machine. But here's a weird thing about that shot. So, you know, Harry has the shackles on uh, with the chain in between, but then that strap just sort of goes across his legs from the outside of the gurney to the outside of the gurney. So he could have clicked his heels together because, well, the restraints are on the outside, not the inside. But, you know, It's that length of chain yeah. that confused everybody, I guess. <laughs> it did. It did. But just, I don't know. How, how do I compress the space with the chain? It was just terror. Yeah. Terror seized him, you know, seized his uh, ability to yeah. think rationally. Speaking of rationally, yeah. the it's kind of like the battle of wits between the doctor mm-hmm. and the clown. I could have watched an entire episode mm. just of Picardo and McKeon acting. That, it, it could be its own episode. It could be its own graphic yeah. novel. I mean, it mm. was great. And and I love the perfect buildup to the EMH's introduction in that scene because there was such tension, such noise, such fear, and then yeah. dead silence. I, it was so yeah. well played. Again, that visual storytelling is just perfect. And I, I do love the clown regarding Janeway when he's talking to Harry. It's like, she would never kill Harry. Uh, I'm thinking, mm. oh, really? Like, this is the second Harry we've got. There are probably yeah. more. <laughs> With, I kind of scratched my ass like, well, she might. Yeah, yeah don't yeah, be so really sure. Harry, so. Yeah. I don't know. Last timestamp for me, timestamp 33 minutes and 58 seconds. So there's a really wonderful close-up of uh, kind of like the optronic circuit board that Balan is working on. And I really like how it holds up in close-up because you had the prop, which is wonderfully machined, and uh, you don't really see like a lot of kind of like imperfections in that prop. But, you know, the, uh, the circuit board also is really good as a practical prop effect, so I thought that was really, really great. And let's let's talk about. I'm sure you're going to bring this up again, but let's talk about just how brilliant mm. the lighting is on the final scene oh. with the clown just basically lamenting that he's disappearing from existence. But it's just being sw- every single cutaway back to him, back from Janeway. He's just kind of like drowned in more and more darkness, and and using silence in that was so effective using that quiet using that silence it felt like marvin rush sort of taking a page out of the twilight zone you know here's what we can do with just get rid of the bells and whistles don't worry about lack of budget let's just focus on the moment let's focus on the actors let's make it dramatic drat All this talk of fear, and yet no one conjures up the implied terror of Tom Paris, heavy metal drummer. We'll be right back after a word from this week's sponsor, Rocket Money. 
There are a couple things, John, that we do at the beginning of the new year. You know, there are resolutions that we make. Mm -hmm. There are plans that we set. And there's, I think, maybe like a top two or three. There's definitely losing that holiday weight. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then another one, like quitting smoking, quitting eating fast food, things like that. All of those good things. Yep. But also right up there is trying to find ways to save money. You know, or to protect yourself from, say, accounts that you haven't checked over the course of maybe weeks or months. And that's where you're losing a lot of money monthly, almost even yearly. And this is why you need rocket money. Yeah. So rocket money, formerly known as Truebill, it is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Very convenient. Now, we've mentioned this before, but keep this statistic in mind because this always blows my mind. Over 80% of people have subscriptions that they have completely forgotten about. Maybe a streaming service that you bought to just watch one show or that free trial that then you never used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily identify your subscriptions for you so you can stop paying for the ones that you don't want. Rocket Money makes canceling subscriptions as easy as a click of a button. Simply find the subscription that you don't want, you press cancel, and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. You don't have to wait a long time on hold with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. None of that. No. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money. And here's another thing that will blow your mind. Saving an average person up to $720 a year. Now, I fully get this. I completely understand it because I've done an assessment of my own. And yes, uh, subscription services, streaming services, all kinds of things that I forgot about. And let me tell you that $2.99 a month, $6.99 a month, $9.99 a month, it adds up. Mm-hmm. And unless you're really kind of like keeping score and checking your your checking account or your credit card bill every single month, it kind of becomes a little bit of an arduous process. And this is where Rocket Money comes in. So the app shows all your subscriptions in one place and then cancels whatever you don't still want. Those accounts that you're just not using anymore that don't bring you any value, but you're still paying for. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions that you didn't even know you were paying for still. You may even find out you've been double charged for a subscription. And if you want to cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Thanks again to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, I thought about something here that maybe maybe it's an angle that is worth exploring a little bit, maybe not so much, but, you know, Star Trek, especially in this period, gets kind of a bad rap for always relying on the holodeck episode. Like, we don't know what to do, so we're going to go into the holodeck and create some problem there. Is this where that tradition comes from, from this series <laughs> well the holiday problem i i mean this this era of star trek oh okay, uh, yeah, you know okay, yeah, yeah yeah not not particularly voyager yet I, I, although voyager had its first holodeck episode pretty early on 
I appreciate that there's a little bit different angle here that we have the weird VR story where, you know, Trek has already given us the holodeck and that has one set of rules and one set of expectations. And we've we've been around it long enough at this point that we kind of know what the parameters are, how they can potentially get out of it or how they can interact. But now we have a VR system that behaves in a very different way. So I like that. I like that we got to sort of have our cake and eat it too. Something new, but the same as well. Mm -hmm. And then something really disturbing cropped up to me. I don't know if you saw this, but here's an example of real life catching up to sci-fi in a disturbing way. A few weeks ago, like literally just a few weeks ago, as of the time of us recording this show, one of the co-founders of Oculus released an image of a special Oculus Quest VR headset that he had modified in such a way that a player who dies in-game would die in real life from, I think it's like three explosive charges that he said in the game piece right above the player's forehead. Now, (laughs) yes, that is a real thing. It really exists. But let me explain. It's not something that is uh, on the market. It's not something that was created to sell to anyone. It is not something that he intends. I I think his name is uh, Patrick Lucky. I might might have that wrong. But it's not something that he created uh, to sell or as a prototype or anything like that. In his words, he created it as a provocative art piece Mm -hmm. to – make the person who sees that, who registers that that thing exists and here's what it would do if you were to actually use it and nobody is intended to actually use it, to blur that line between gameplay and real life and what are the stakes that you experience when you are in gameplay. Because we can allow ourselves to do something that is very dangerous when we're in a virtual simulation, knowing that we won't actually be hurt. You know, I've done a thing at, uh, well, at Rod's with his VR set where you do a thing like you're standing on a tightrope over a chasm or you're in, you know, a roller coaster that goes off the rails or something. And you sense it. There is a fear element there, but you also know that you are standing on the floor in somebody's house. Right, sure. You know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this, again, provocative art piece is, is something to challenge the viewer to go, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, are the stakes actually that high? Is it, quote, unquote, real if I'm dying in the game, if I'm experiencing uh, exhilaration or fear or something in the game? And I think why, you know, why I'm bringing this up is that it made me think, well, that then is something that the holodeck allows you to do. You can turn the safety protocols off in the holodeck and decide, you know what, it's not good enough that I just feel like I'm in fear from a dangerous situation. I actually am in danger from this situation. Mm -hmm. So Star Trek posits a world where that thing actually exists. All you have to do is give the computer a specific command before you go into your simulation. You know, I've never really understood that about like uh, an actual setting in the holodeck. So the holodeck was created so that you would have these recreational events where people on, you know, these deep space missions can go and unwind and enjoy that, Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, 
entertainment, right, for mm-hmm. them, you know, so that stimulates them for, in a way that's outside of their local, you know, their duties, which are kind of mundane, maybe, and just kind of like wear them down over time. You know, we're humans, and we need that kind of stimulation. Yeah. But why would in their right minds would any programmer say, you know what, let's give these people the opportunity to accidentally kill themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, we spent a lot of time and a lot of investment in training and teaching and creating these leaders, mm-hmm. right, to go out there and, you know, push forward this better humanity. <laughs> and all of a sudden, one of them slips and dies because they're rock climbing without safety protocols. Right. Exactly. Does that exactly. Makes, it yeah. makes no sense to me. It makes no all. sense whatsoever other than a writing device. You know, you have right. the ability to tell the writer, okay, you can turn off the safety protocols to endanger your crew because without conflict, without drama, there's no story. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, like the fact that that exists, it, it did make me think though that as much as I've done with VR, there are some of those experiences that are very benign. You, yeah. Walking around a, say, a historic recreation or or just seeing something beautiful and otherworldly that you couldn't visit in real life, you couldn't mm-hmm. create in real life. Sure. But part of the fun of a virtual reality game is this blending of the real and the virtual. If I'm doing something that is stressful or, or raises tension, my heart rate goes up, my palms sweat, I feel like I'm in danger, even though I'm not, even though I'm just some dude standing in a quiet room you know, with big goggles on my head and holding a couple of hand controllers, but you still feel it. You still feel the tension and the excitement. So I guess that's just like the next step. Okay. If you could do something like, okay, let's think back to a thing that we like to make fun of the video game and never say never again. All right. So for those of you who haven't seen it, the 1983 non-official, non-Eon production of a James Bond story, Mm -hmm. Bond and his nemesis sitting at a table playing uh, a game, but then the hand controllers give off an electric shock to the point that it could be deadly, theoretically. Mm -hmm. You hang on to it and the the shock, the charge builds up enough. But that's just sort of the game taking it to the next level. Like, no, 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 you're not just playing a game. You're playing a game that is so intense that it could hurt you Mm -hmm. and potentially kill you. It also was kind of like measuring the level, like the level of machismo, you know, between like Bond, you know, and – Who was it? It was like Klaus – Klaus Meyer Brandauer. So – I understand it. And I think that this is where Jane Way was kind of like um, making a point of she understands that there are still thrill seekers, you know, that are tempting fate, that are feeding fear. But why? You know, what mm-hmm. does fear get at the end of this ride? And that get, I mean, this, this episode is really interesting because it, it, it posits the question, is fear, like, is an emotion something that you can actually negotiate with? And here's the bigger question. This is something that's, <laughs> and this has been interesting, you know, in, in yeah. Voyager, you know, it's actually, they've, they've framed a couple episodes to ask us or to make us ask this question. Was fear an actual life form? Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I'm, C- I'm carry gonna, on. I'm going to take, yeah. and, and, and I, lo- I'm, I know when the gears turn in your head, John. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yep. you know, so. <laughs> the clown says, I have only one demand to exist. Now, According what, to what we have learned thus far in Star Trek about artificial life forms and holographic life forms like Data and the Doctor, you know, just mm-hmm. use them as the prime examples. If fear has evolved past its initial response to the hibernation system, 
And if fear is intelligent and self-aware of its own existence and of its own mortality and is, is conscious of its own actions, then by nature, from what the, the precedent that was set in Measure of a Man with Picard, right? If that precedent has been set and can be weighed against an artificial life form in Data's case or holographic life form, then does it apply to fear? I'm based so on glad. What, based, yes. on the soul, based on the sole example of what he said, I have only one demand to exist. That means yeah. he acknowledges his existence and he has the cognizance of his own self-awareness. Yeah, I, I'm so right. glad you brought it up exactly the way that you did, because the EMH and data are exactly what I thought about. And let's specifically talk about the EMH, because we're in Voyager, and he's a character that, you know, well, all kind of decided early on has has a right to a life, that he, he is a being that, even if we're asking if he is sentient, that is really just an academic question at that point. We treat him as if he is, and we've decided that it would be a bad thing to abuse that life form. That No, he is integrated into part of the crew. He is, he is a friend to the crew, and he's a necessary component of that crew. But the Doctor is a creation of ones and zeros programmed that are then manifested by photons and force fields. That's what he is, right? Mm -hmm. But we have decided that that particular collection of ones and zeros manifested by photons and force fields is one that we respect and want to get along with. But here comes one that is created by the dream state of the coal colonists based on their subconscious. And there but for the grace of God goes Dr. Zimmerman or mm -hmm. any of his programmers who on purpose or by accident could have created some of the same very poor personality quirks that ended up in this fear manifestation that could have ended up in the EMH. So who are we to... I think we can say that Janeway or anybody else in that situation has a right to pull the plug on fear because fear is endangering... The clown mm -hmm. is endangering those living beings that he comes into contact with but that is pulling the plug on a being if we use that same standard that we do for the emh right yeah and that kind of leads into like part two of kind of like this three-part analysis of fear that's you know that i wanted to study in this episode what mm -hmm. does fear want so mm. janeway says you know what does fear seek at the end of the ride and it's, just, it's, it's such an interesting concept because mm -hmm. she said also earlier on that how do you negotiate with an emotion? Okay, yeah. so if this is an emotion and they've identified it as such, you know, what does the emotion want aside from existing as an emotion? What does it want if it is the ultimate form of its own manifestation or because it actually says something like I have only one demand to exist? Can it become more than just an emotion? Can it evolve? And if it does, does it go back to my first question? <laughs> so I, I love framing fear like this because uh, I will repeat one of my oft-quoted favorite lines from Mad Men, which I don't know if I've shared on this show, but I certainly have in real life to anybody who has listened to me for more than 10 minutes. Um, Don Draper has this great line. 
he says to a, a room of people that he's trying to pitch a particular ad campaign, what is happiness? It's the moment before you need more happiness. Flip that around. Let's look at the flip side of that coin. And that is fear. What is fear in this case? It is the moment before you need more fear. Mm-hmm. Not not you, the player in this case, but the clown in this case. Right. His existence is entirely predicated on that moment-to-moment need of getting the response of more fear out of the people that he controls. Because what is the end game? There may not actually be an end game. Has he gotten all the fear? Just like one can't have all the happiness? Mm-hmm. No, it's an impossible goal. There is no goal there. It is simply moment to moment and then deciding that you need more. It's right. like a horrible addiction that actually has no end game other than, I guess, death. Or feeding its own addiction. Yeah. You know, and that yeah. kind of like brings me to like the last part of this like three part analysis. So the the question here is, what does fear even fear, or how can an emotion mm. recognize its own existence? So at the end, that wonderfully directed, beautiful scene, you know, where fear is kind of like succumbing to darkness and disappearing out of existence. You know, the clown says, "I'm afraid," and Janeway says, "I know." So what does fear even fear? How can an emotion recognize its own existence? Again, going all the way back to step one consciousness, Mm -hmm. self-awareness, what does it want? Or does it need and demand the symbiotic relationship of this real brain, not a symbiotic brain, near a synthetic brain, but a real brain to exist at all? Is respect what fear desires or perhaps Hmm. adulation? What feeds fear's ego, right? If If it in fact has an ego, Let's go all the way back to who mourns for Adonais. You know, I, I, Apollo. I was just about to bring it up. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, these gods, yeah. these aliens, you know, they yeah. they feed on the adulation of their worshipers and they become more powerful. So if you don't have the adulation and respect and, you know, the throngs of worshipers, you lose that power and kind of like that, the addiction that it causes. So there's a wonderful, you know, there's a wonderful turn of phrase that Harry says, like, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, you know, and I think that comes from uh, Churchill, I think? Uh, no, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and and Harry repeats that as a mantra, just to try and convince himself that this is the fact. But let's kind of take a look at it, rephrasing that. Okay. And let's put the emphasis on nothing to fear. There is nothing to mm. fear, not nothing to fear, but nothing as a no substance to actual fear. Right. But right. the definition or calling it fear. So if fear has no identity, mm. then what does it want? And I'm going to leave you with this one, last, this one last thought. Okay. It would have been really interesting to see fear in response to, say, grappling with Tuvok, you know, a oh, master of yeah. you know, controlling emotion. Oh, okay. So that is perfect because we just came off of Innocence in which Tuvok is trying to guide these children away from their fear, or at least get them to be able to focus so they're, they're not dominated by their fear. And I feel like this is maybe the missed opportunity of the episode. You said that you would watch a whole episode of just the doctor and the clown. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would watch a whole episode of Tuvok and the clown. We never got Tuvok yeah. <laughs> into the simulation here. And I, I grappled with this idea because I, I had to wonder if that's at least something that came up in Joe Minoski's mind when crafting this or working with any of the other uh, writing staff on this episode. So 
I mean, the reality is this. Janeway is the captain and Kate is the star of the show. And anyone who's listened to Mission Log as long as we've covered Voyager knows that I am full of praise and admiration for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this episode, it could have done something very interesting by having Tuvok go into that simulation and do mental battle with the clown. Now, here's the problem with that. I know that by doing that, we would have taken away a very important element of what makes this episode tick, and that is Janeway's very human admission that fear is necessary. It's kind of like I thought of Kirk in... uh, uh, Star Trek Five. I need my pain. Here's sure. Janeway saying, "I need my fear." Right? Sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, but th- the problem is that I have seen Tuvok deal with fear and mental discipline, and I haven't been given anything in Janeway's background yet that shows me that she's the best equipped for this task above everyone else. I mean, she. There is a. A line where she said Starfleet cabins don't easily succumb to fear. Is that something that uh, do we believe? I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, you're kind of like hand waving that just all Starfleet captains are conditioned in such a way to be able to ignore that. Yeah. See, I just feel like it's a very generic kind of throwaway yeah. line. It's like, yeah, but is that is that a literal thing? Do you mean that everybody who is qualified to be captain has gone through fear training mm-hmm. like I, that? It, that's a line that didn't ring true to me. Mm-hmm. It felt like a line of dialogue meant to hand wave this thing away. Yeah. Whereas with Tuvok, I feel like we have all these earned moments of, ooh, here's what his mental discipline is like, because we also know what he's fighting in the back of his head. I mean, look at Meld. Yeah. Look, look at, you know, look at Innocence. Look at any time that these things have come up. I mean, look, I I agree with you. It was inspired to have the EMH go in there. We probably could have dealt with more of that. And I know that what this story has to do is it has to make itself relatable. It has to make these moments relatable, that we have to have a human dealing with fear. Maybe if we had a Vulcan do it, it would feel a little too much like magic because – I personally, as a human, I can't muster up the mental discipline of a Vulcan, but then neither could those kids in innocence, and yet they tried, <laughs> you know? So I, I, maybe Tuvok is the missing element that I need here. I have a suggestion to improve the script. Harry could be strapped down to the table saying, Serenity now, over and over. Norman, we have nothing to fear but the end of the show itself. And that is where we have arrived. (laughs) Though we will tackle it with the same aplomb and grace and uh, investigative spirit that we do everything on every episode of Mission Log, looking at the morals, meanings, messages, and seeing if the episode holds up. So this week, it's the thaw. The thought, you think we're just talking about those people, those coal colonists, and them literally thawing out in the, in the pods that they're in? Or maybe we're talking about thawing the fear of fear itself. Uh, that would be a yes and a yes. You know, we haven't played the title game in quite some time. Yeah. I was trying to figure out like exactly what does this title mean in, in the course of this episode. I think that it's just this whole thawing of... It's like an emotional thawing. 
It sounds like, yeah, it, it, yeah, that is actually very applicable here because you're embracing, you know, the concept of understanding the most primal emotion, at least as Tuvok says. And I have a little bit of a, a, a point of contention with that. Like, why is it fear and why is it not love or passion? Passion is pretty primal. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, uh, so, right, right. I'm just saying. So, um, you know what? Yeah. I, that That's a good question. Uh, I'd love to hear what the audience has to say. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well, tell me if you think it holds up, and then we'll get into our uh, morals, meanings, messages after I, I mean, do. I think it does, but just barely. Mm. You know, but just mm. barely. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love this episode for kind of like this wonderful, campy Batman 1966 flavor it had to it, especially kind of like in that neural dream state where, like I said, it, the the whole concept of it was Cirque du Soleil kind of like on acid in a low budget. But that's <laughs> yeah. a very much similar to kind of like the, the spirit of like 1966, you know, science fiction and fantasy. The concepts in this episode are incredible. Yeah. And I think that they actually gave the concepts the opportunity to breathe and be explored. But there's something here. Forgive me, John, for saying this. Forgive me, audience, for saying this. But there's something here that feels a lot like that season one Deep Space Nine episode, Move Along Home. (laughs) Alamorane. That was was for you, BC. (laughs) So what I I mean by that is like in this this episode, The Thaw, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is what Move Move Along Home wanted to be if it just leaned into kind of like uh, the – the concept of that episode harder. And I think that this episode, the thaw was more successful in that way, but it has that weird, like uncomfortable childlike immaturity of like, you know, jugglers and mimes and clowns mm-hmm. and etc. cetera. Um, so that execution didn't quite work for me. That's mm-hmm. why it's in the just barely category for me. But what makes this episode outstanding. Yeah is the clown is michael mckeon oh my god right yeah and or or fear personified right yeah michael mckeon plays this character to perfection and just thinking about what he had to work with off the page and translate it into this you know this characterization of this performance is mind-boggling because when you really think about it fear or the clown is kind of like this is part like greek philosopher part joker Right. You know, Mm. there's this wonderful Mm. balance that McKeon had of like arrogance and mayhem and vulnerability and all these nuances that make this role so like so unbelievable to watch. Right. There's this this energy that he has. And you can hear you can hear Lenny coming out. You can hear St. Hubbins coming out. You know, you can hear McKeon himself coming out. He has a certain cadence, a certain like tone and tenor to his laugh. But that's what makes this episode memorable. Him. You know, and I couldn't even imagine what this episode would be like if they didn't land him as the clown. I think this episode would have fallen incredibly flat. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, again, the scenes where he and Picardo were chewing the scenery against each other. Oh I think God. that's fantastic. That's some of the greatest television you can think of. But I also would have liked to have seen him go up against Tim Russ's Tuvok because I think that also would have been really interesting. But I do like this episode a lot. I would recommend it because of the performances. I just wish that some of the execution production-wise was a little bit better, but I found it very entertaining, especially over rewatches. 
Mm-hmm. You know, especially mm-hmm. over rewatches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, John? So uh, it, it's interesting because the things that you point out that you say give it a just barely, you know, you, mm-hmm. you're just over that halfway point where you say, yeah, it holds up, but there are all these sort of distractions or, or things that maybe uh, knock it down a peg or two. Those are the things that I think I really appreciated that push this into an unequivocal holds up I think it's great. Because it goes against the grain? I, I think partly because it goes against the grain and partly because I think back to an episode like Spectre of the Gun where yeah, where yeah. you can use the lack of budget. You can use – like we, we could uh, sort of – you know, Monday morning quarterback this and go like, oh, but if they had only done this with the visuals or think of it now, you could add these types of effects to really drive home the sort of madhouse, surreal environment they're in. I, certainly, I was not kidding in that early part where I said that I would go absolutely mad with this like Cirque du Soleil <laughs> Ren Faire thing at 100%. Yeah. But I think everything around it elevates that the actors elevate that the lighting and direction elevate that the use of like the strengths that we have here of showing rather than telling elevate all of that material a Mm -hmm. line like janeway saying that you know i forget the exact line but yeah starfleet captains are very good at dealing with their fear or whatever that was telling rather than showing and that's why a line like that stands out to me the rest of what happens in the episode feels like oh okay we're actually in the moment and we're actually going along with this surreal ride right Mm -hmm. but i'm so glad that you mentioned that this is one of those that holds up upon a rewatch because I feel like we've had this string of episodes where we come away with that pattern. You can kind of dismiss it at first. It it looks a little strange. The production technique feels a little dated or you can feel those budget cuts. There are elements that are hokey, but then you watch it a second and a third time and then suddenly the nuances really leap out at you and reveal themselves to you. And like you said, you know, MVP here is Michael McKean. He's just so good. And what I like, I, God, I'm so glad you mentioned Move Along Home. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, all right, in an episode like this, Joe Minoski takes an abstract concept and then turns that into high concept sci-fi. Right. So a plus right away for just batting for the fences. This is not a thing that Star Trek usually does. And and then you have Marvin Rush doing his best to bring this sense of weirdness and danger to everything. And I think he accomplishes that too. move along home. And uh, let me mention uh, Dan over at Trek geeks, because he really likes that episode because Mm -hmm. he sees in it the fun, weird Batman 66 aspect of that episode right right Mm -hmm. to me like okay yeah i can sort of see how you see it like that but then an episode like this comes along and i go okay now we take the weird fun surreal aspect of it but we actually give it a reason we actually give it a depth where we say no no it's not just about a game it is about actually confronting an emotion personified yeah that that's just such a bizarre concept and then you can get away with doing the weird, surreal, hokey, bizarre Cirque du Soleil stuff because it's okay if that doesn't make sense. 
that underlying feeling of fear and tension is present throughout. So I think this one succeeds where a show like uh, uh, Move Along Home does not, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's just, you know, to me, here is an episode where concept is key. And it could have been. You could take the same idea and you could have used it on TNG or TOS. You know, you mentioned before that that TOS is almost a template for an episode like this. All of that is a plus in my book, meaning Mm -hmm. that you could take a story that is so strong with a concept that is so lofty, so challenging mentally, that then you can picture other crews being challenged in the same way. Yeah, so, there was um, a, a wonderful kind of like spiritual connection to say like, you know, Garth and Marta, you know, on Elba 2, you know, in whom gods destroy, mm, you know, yeah, right, there was that right, sort yeah. of kind of like that uh, encapsulated insanity that was going on, in, you know, in, the, uh, in yeah. the asylum. Yeah. So, and you mentioned it, you know, Batman 66, or looking at a TOS style, our connection point there is Frank Gorshin. And of course, uh, oh, yeah. and, and of course, you could see, like, you could absolutely recreate the show in TOS style with Frank Gorshin as the clown, oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. And then, so then, who do you put in there? Do I buy Kirk talking down fear, or do I still have the same problem that I have with Janeway trying to talk down fear? When actually Spock is probably the one to do it, because we know Spock has all those simmering emotions happening underneath. He's just had to develop the mental discipline to keep those at bay. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is wonderfully fascinating stuff, and to me, that means that the concept here is so strong that it just works as a story, regardless whatever other shortcomings there are in the actual execution of it. Uh, you know, Joe Minoski kept turning out weird scripts in Star Trek. Not all of them winners, but for this one, I'm here for it. I, I want that surrealism to creep in from time to time. So I'm going to give it a uh, an absolute holds up. Now let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. I feel like this is just a contemplative look at an aspect of our psyche. Do we mm-hmm. walk away with a you see Timmy moment? I mean, not for me so much. I mean, of course, there were like these moments where Janeway again said that, you know, the reason why Starship captains are who they are is because they have been able to master their fear, even though she didn't understand it, but she was able to master it and be able to get the upper hand on the clown at the end. But I found that these like these greater abstract philosophical ideas were were more kind of like from these observational standpoints. So it's not necessarily like a moral, but maybe there is a an overall kind of like message, you know, that was kind of like mm. being parsed out over the course of this episode. One thing, though, that I found interesting, and this came out in 1996, and The Matrix came out in 1999, but this was very Matrix-esque. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. think about it this way. The clown's reality existed solely on the energy that the fear of its prisoners provided it when trapped in the dream state. You know, their bodies were sustained in the life pods in the outside world. That's the Matrix. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. because the machines, you know, they they created the Matrix – uh, very much like Jaina was talking about, that technology of the dream state that allowed the mind to be able to be entertained so that it sustained itself on these long journeys. That's the matrix, right? Yeah. So that the, the batteries, you know, that they that the humans became were able to sustain the machines. So you have this incredible hierarchy of this philosophical layering that's going on in this episode. So you have that, but you also have maybe what is a 
may, it could be a tipping point here for Star Trek, you know, at least, you know, where Voyager is concerned with Star Trek's definition of life, right? Because, you know, we always kind of explore that from time to time, you know, and especially with the clown or fear as an actual life form. So how far are we willing to go to recognize and protect each and every interpretation of life in Star Trek, <laughs> right? You know, that's just one of those, again, a, a message that I saw because it was very applicable to Data's argument and the doctor's argument based on what fear said, you know, like I have this demand, I want to exist. But overall though, so you take a look at Janeway uh, as well. And, and Janeway says, um, or we look at Janeway, let fear slip away and die from starvation as it was no longer connected to the energy source of its prisoners at the end because she tricked death. Now, I mean, she tricked uh, uh-huh. fear. Right? Uh, and um, I can't help, but, and I've said this before, I can't help but make this a parallel to Apollo and who mourns for Adonais or maybe even the Q, mm. right? Because if you look at fear as a god in its own domain and you deprive said god from the reverence and adulation and attention it demands from its throngs of worshipers, you're not only depriving it of power, but you're also coming to terms with freeing yourself as one of those throngs from the emotional and mental shackles, keeping you prisoner from what you could have been i.e. going back to the matrix. So fear in and of itself is a means of control in this situation, you know, and once you break free from the shackles of said control, then you can evolve. And is that what fear is afraid of? I like that interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I mine are pretty short and sweet on this one. I, I, I'll go back to that uh, Franklin Roosevelt line, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. It, it, it's kind of cute to me how Harry keeps repeating it, <laughs> but the words don't have any effect. <laughs> yeah. And I ask myself, is it because he hasn't internalized that he's just telling himself something that he hopes will be true but it isn't true unless he actually lives it unless he can actually absorb that lesson and make that reality instead of the fearsome situation that he's in so sometimes you fake it until you make it but in this case he's not going to make it Unless he's got somebody like the EMH to come along and save him. Would you mind if he interrupted you for one No, of second? course. Because of course. That, I love that. That brings yeah. up a great point that you made before, Spectre of the mm-hmm. Gun. Inspector of the Gun, Chekhov was killed by a bullet because mm-hmm. he believed the bullet was going to kill him. And it yeah. did. And that's very much like the guillotine killing the scientists because they believed that their death was real. So what happens when you actually have somebody that can intervene on the behalf of these people who believe that their death would be real? This is exactly like Spectre of the Gun, because if you have somebody now in this, in, in, you know, in, in this, you know, waging this war against the clown and say, hey, none of this actually exists. It has no power over you. Mm. Then what? Mm-hmm. Right. Then, yeah. like Spock did, you know, with the mind melts. Again, yeah. this is where we could have had Tuvok continue that. See, there you go. Right. So, so that, that, that's the lesson of this episode. Not enough Tuvok. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I do like, though, I mean, I, I mentioned the Kirk line before, I need my pain, and here's Janeway seeing that she needs her fear. And in this case, we're acknowledging not just that fear is something that needs to be overcome in this way, but fear is normal and even necessary. And 
as many criticisms as maybe I can make or or second guessing as I could make about Janeway being in this position, I do love God, I, maybe because the ending of this episode is so poetic. She has this kind of beautiful Zen approach to master her fear and talk it down. She internalizes it the way that Harry Kim doesn't or can't. And I wish I knew her secret. <laughs> and maybe it's just all those years of friendship with Tuvok. Maybe it's a mind meld or two away, but, uh, but she's got a lesson somewhere a technique buried somewhere in her mind that allows her to do that and uh, and it was pretty beautiful to see Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment if you would like to support us directly you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord our website is missionlogpodcast.com and for more Star Trek news and discussion visit trekmovie.com on the next Mission Log Tuvix Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I wonder if we'll ever revisit the idea of a hologram Janeway saving the day. Nah, probably not. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.